So question number five is, how do we know what is right and wrong? Now you might say, well, only Christians believe in right or wrong. No, that's not true. There's many people, even those that do not believe in God or any form of special revelation, that also believe in a measure of right or wrong. Their right or wrong may be different than someone else's, but uh, this is a question that every worldview on some level asks and tries to answer. So the common responses are cultural survival. So how did, how did this intrinsic idea that murdering someone is wrong come about? Um, some people would say it's because of cultural survival. I mean, there's a, there's a pragmatic dimension to this. We understand that if we start just killing each other that it's going to affect us ne negatively as well and our species isn't going to survive. So there's a sense in which our cultural circumstances uh, determine that which is right or wrong. Okay, so that's one answer to the question. Now, by the way, the, there, there is one example, this may disturb you, but there actually is one example even in Christian theology where this is in fact true, and that's incest. I have an uncle that says, I'm not a Christian because the Bible says you, you shouldn't be involved in incestuous relationships, and clearly... Adam and Eve's children must have got together in order to create the human species, right? Or to propagate the human species. Well, um, that uh, challenge to Christianity is actually based upon ignorance. The incest laws came from God progressively out of necessity. So, for instance... If you look at the gen genetic diversity in this room, the good genetic diversity, obviously there's mutations and problems with some of our genetics, but the, the good genetic diversity in this room, one might be able to argue that based upon the genetic diversity that we see in human beings today, that Adam and Eve were in fact two of the most, the most genetically diverse people ever to live. In fact, so genetically um, uh, diverse that, in a sense, Eve could be Adam's genetic clone. I mean, how much more related can you get than that? Have you ever thought about that? If Eve came from Adam, she was actually cloned from him in the sense that her genetics would have, I suppose, be identical to his, but they were able to have all kinds of healthy children with absolutely no problems at all. Try taking a brother and sister today and having children with them, and you're almost guaranteed to have some problems either in one generation or the next, right? So Adam and Eve, in theory, would have had an incredibly broad genetic makeup, and so for a number of generations, people could marry very close, even brothers and sisters. I mean, we even get to Abraham, who is a few thousand years removed from the creation account, and he's married to Sarah, and Sarah, keep in mind, it's his, it's his half-sister, but they have healthy children, and then in each generation, there's intermingling, and slowly over time, God begins to enact rules, and those rules aren't in place so much because they're rooted in some moral dimension of God, but it's out of cultural, it's out of cultural survival for human beings that these laws were put in place. It's the same thing when God put certain dietary laws in place for the Jews that were were not in place before and they were removed later because in part they were protective. Like some guy living in 
you know, 1850 BC, who's eating pork, isn't aware of certain things that we are aware of, or later generations were aware of. So God says, don't do it. Yeah, he's trying to protect them in some ways from some of the diseases, most would argue. And it wasn't until humanity developed a greater awareness of how to cook things properly in that, that some would say those laws were removed. So it, it's, it's, it's okay on some level to say that some of God's laws aren't so much moral laws. It's not like they're all right and wrong is tied to the very character of God himself. Some of them are civil laws. Some of them are protective laws. And then there's other laws like murder, like sanctity of marriage, uh, like not lying, like not coveting. They're actually more moral in nature. Nevertheless, there's some that would just say all right and wrong is determined by cultural survival response. A second response to this question is presupposed assumptions that have developed over time. And they would argue, well, that's why you can go down to some tribe in Papua New Guinea and they have a very different set of moral principles than we do. So they feel more comfortable killing each other for instance, and vengeance for killing. Well, they may do that more, but that doesn't mean that it's any less enjoyable or acceptable within their culture because if killing someone is morally neutral, then why does the next tribe get upset with it and go back and kill someone as a result of the killing that took place from the other tribe sometime earlier? So it's true that certain cultures may demonstrate a greater depravity in a certain area, but that doesn't mean they're necess they necessarily have a completely different set of, of moral ethics, at least on the fundamentals. And then there's divine revelation, which would be what theists would believe in, those who've received revelatory truths from God, commandments, hadiths, surahs, chapters, books, Bibles, prophets, apostles, these kinds of things that somehow right or wrong is determined by a divine being. And I'll just put a fourth one in there. I know it's not in your notes, but some just might sort of say all of the above, sort of a mix and match, combinational type of approach, not necessarily consistent, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself that uh, a lot of Canadians wouldn't, would maybe try to pick and choose from a little bit of all of those in terms of determining what's, what's right and what's wrong. Okay, six, the sixth question is what's the meaning of human history? So pretty much all worldviews believe that human history is linear or at least cyclical, but it's moving through a series of events to something. And the question is, what is the meaning of human history? Well, some would say it's preparation for paradise. And that really is the meaning of history. It's, it's, it's all about preparing for something better. Uh, others would say that it's to fulfill a... Uh, a divine plan that has been uh, given to us. And others would say that uh, there is no meaning, at least ultimately, there's no meaning to human history. It's a blip in time. It's going to come and it's going to go. You know, maybe the universe is going to go cold and it's just going to kind of be something that happened and, and there's really no, no meaning attached to it whatsoever. So those are major questions that Sire and others suggest are asked and tried to be answered by every major worldview. Now, Ravi Zacharias, you may have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He was um, from India, educated in India, in Canada, and the United States. 
and he summarizes life's major questions using four categories, which I actually think are, are quite thoughtful because they're sort of intuitive. The first is the inescapable question of origin. So one could write under that, where do I come from? It's a question that people ask. Some of them ask it more on a macro, macro level, like where do I come from ultimately? Others ask it more like on a micro question. They're interested in their family history, their, their circumstances, their culture, their surroundings, and maybe not thinking as much about ult the ultimate question, but more, more in a very practical way. But nevertheless, there's this inescapable question that uh, the vast majority of people ask, and that is, where do I come from? And then there's the inescapable question of meaning. And that really is the question, why am I here? Or why do I exist? Or what's my purpose in life? You know, I asked some of these questions uh, at the beginning of my message on Sunday. These are questions of meaning. And different people answer them in different ways. Then there's the inescapable question of morality, which is the question of ethics. How should I act? How should I act? And then finally, there's the inescapable question of destiny. Where am I going? So where am I from? Where am I going? That's the beginning and the end questions. And then in between, how should I act? And what's the, why, why am I here? Or why am I here? And then how should I act? Probably in that order. Now, what are these questions by nature really like? Well, in some ways, there's sort of a, there's sort of a combination of uh, answers to that question. Partly, these questions are theological questions. Theology, of course, is the study of God's word. So, theo, God. Word, the study of God's word. Now, whether you've ever heard of that word or not, theology, most people in some ways have a theology. It might be a small t, might be kind of nebulous and undefined, but most people have somewhat of a theology. And the questions of uh, origins, meaning, morality, and destiny are partly theological questions. Each question is pondered with certain assumptions about divinity even if the assumption is there is no divinity or I am divinity or we are divinity or there is a divine one up there or there are many of them. So these questions are partly theological. They, they, they imply certain assumptions about divinity. So obviously then, questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny are going to be answered differently for someone who believes that they are God as opposed to someone who doesn't believe that they're God. Someone that believes there is a God as opposed to there isn't a God, they're going to answer these questions differently. See, so th the theological underpinnings bear on the responses we have. Secondly, um, the questions are partly philosophical. Each question is pondered within certain metaphysical and epistemological assumptions. So metaphysics broadly, nature of reality, nature of being, epistemology, nature of knowing, so under being, who are we? What is our composition? What composes a human being? Are we just biological or is there a soul? Is there a spirit? Is there something uh, that's part of our constitution that's different than a goat? 
Or is the constitution of a goat and a human essentially the same? What's the difference? What's our constitution? Uh, study of knowing uh, answers, tries to ask the question, how do we know? Well, we have different answers to that. There's uh, propositional knowledge, sort of knowing that kind of knowledge. Um, there's also knowledge how. A person can have a measure of knowledge that's not so much based, it on, based on propositions, but more on kinesthetic learning or practice or experience. They just kind of know how to make something or fix something. There's knowledge by acquaintance, um, you know, social knowledge. There's conversations within, uh, you know, learning theory about the difference between IQ and EQ. You know, IQ is more like ability to process information, reasoning skills, deductive propositional skills. EQ is more like the, the social, the ability to intuitively understand people, discernment. And by the way, uh, they say that nine times out of ten, people with high EQ always rule and lead those with high IQ. <laughs> because we are social beings. And in fact, EQ generally takes you much further in life than IQ. Not that having a good IQ is a bad thing, but EQ often takes people with even lower IQs quite a bit further than those with high IQs because they don't have the social skills, right? So, um, so by, by reason, by the way, we, ha we sort of have um, two different ways that we could talk about reasoning. A priori reasoning is reasoning that is not by experience. And a posteriori reasoning is reasoning by experience. So a priori is more like um, the statement, all single men are bachelors. And it's just kind of a reality. You don't really have to experience it to know it. It's just sort of, it's, it's reasonable. All single men are bachelors. Um, but if you were to say bachelors are unhappy, that's more a posteriori logic and that it's more by experience, by observation, that kind of thing. So different ways of sort of reasoning. And <clears throat> so these questions are partly philosophical in nature. Uh, I would suggest to you that they're partly theological, partly philosophical, but they're all practical. For this very reason, each question is certainly pondered with significant implications for your life. So when you, th depending on how you answer the question, what is, where do I come from? That kind of has significant implications for what you do on Sunday morning, what you do in the temple, the mosque, the synagogue, what you read, what you don't read, kind of, kind of important. Questions of meaning, I mean, that's going to impact your vocational choices in some ways. Uh, it's going to impact how you spend your money, whether you give your money away or keep it all for yourself, whether you steal money or earn it. There's implications. Our actions are knowingly or unknowingly consciously or unconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, rooted in our perceived responses to these questions, right? So if you believe you were created by God, you're made in the image of God, morality is absolute, and you're going to heaven when you die, that's going to sort of take you down a different road in life than if you believe you're a creature of chance, there is no meaning, 
there is no such thing as objective morality, and when you're dead, you're dead, it's going to affect the way that you live your life. So they're very practical in nature, okay? So any comments or questions then about the nature of worldviews or their significance? Or, and, and I do mean comments, questions, or comments. If you have comments that you would like to make that you think would be helpful for the class to hear, I, feel free to do so. Worldviews, what do you think? Does this make sense to any of you? <laughs> How many of you have studied worldviews in the past? Um, truth Project, anybody done the Truth Project? Okay. If you've done the Truth Project, you've studied worldviews because the Truth Project is fundamentally about worldviews, how we think about life and truth. And it's actually a very helpful series for those wanting to think through matters of truth and, and defend it. So uh, when you are doing apologetics, think about worldview questions. Try to figure out what your opponent thinks about these fundamental questions. You can frame them as the six, or you can frame them as the four, as Ravi Zacharias does. But think about, try to get into this person's head. Where do they think they come from? What, what's their view of knowledge and meaning and destiny and these kinds of things? And it's, you're actually going to find that, that spending more time asking those questions, trying to discern the answers to those questions, is going to open up far more doors than simply knowing about what they believe about a particular aspect, for instance, of their religion. Trevor? Okay. So more of a practical question is what do you do with the person who doesn't want to have a conversation. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay. Well, that's obviously a person who's very much more difficult to talk to than someone who knocks on your door and says, I'm from the Kingdom Hall. I want to talk to you about eternal issues, right? Um... <coughs> Well, I think you need to discern, is the person avoiding the question or questions because it's too painful for them to think about it? Are they just kind of adult? They don't like to think, period. In which case, you're probably not going to, in one conversation, teach them how to think. Uh, is the person, sometimes you meet people that are like that, and it's really a pride issue. They kind of want to be viewed as in control, especially men. They want to be in control. They want to be tough. They don't want to get into drivelly, girly stuff like God. and you know, That's their perception, right? And sometimes the church has fed that because the only church they've ever been to is filled with flowers and pink curtains and everything else. But that's another discussion. Um, so I think it really is, I, I would probably, uh, first of all, I would, I would admittedly find a person like that frustrating but I would probably try to determine, not necessarily one conversation, but I would try to determine, based on my relationship with that person, why are they like that? Is it really an intellectual disinterest? Is it a pain in their life? Is it a fear of having those kind of conversations? So if, 
depending on how I answer that question, I may just take a long time to build the relationship. I may resort more to storytelling. Hey, here's what, you know, my can you believe my kid did this this week and here's how we responded to it? Kind of real life apologetics, just talking about how my faith is lived out, how I respond to difficulties in my marriage, my home, my life, my church, maybe a friend that died. More like practical conversations. Because uh, you don't have to have like philosophical, deep theological conversations with everyone. And many people won't want to have those anyway. So, and hopefully just by building that relationship, the person's guard will drop or you'll help them to think more and you'll be able to get into some of the deeper stuff. I've been there. I, uh, I have a close relative uh, who had a heart attack and um, went to see him. He's my dad. And um, <laughs> I, I asked him questions about his eternal destiny and he, he was very um, partly nonchalant and partly he, he, he manifested, in counseling we call it avoidance, right? <laughs> uh, but he manifested a, a desire to avoid, to sort of switch the subjects to problems within the church. Some pastor that was a moron that he met 10 years earlier. Kind of av avoiding the subject. And it, I, I really don't think I've broken through with him, but I have had great opportunities to speak in his life. By the way, keep this between us because he'll be in church on Sunday. So be nice to him. Okay. So we'll just delete that from the recording. Not that you're probably listening to it anyway. But yeah. Other questions? Comments? That's like, I would say that's one of the default arguments. You'll find there's certain default arguments in all apologetics. One, it, one is uh, what you've just said. Another is why does God allow suffering? Okay, that's pretty common. Um, another one in the last 150 years is what about evolution? Right, that's a common one. And another is more of like a defensive response that. Uh, <clears throat> kind of goes along the lines of like, don't judge me, or <clears throat> you know, there's there's no such thing as anyone who's right, that kind of stuff. And actually, I, I would suggest that one of the culprits for that final one, that everyone is right, is the church, because the church has done a very poor job defining what it means to judge or articulate truth over and against competing truth claims or what we would just say lies or heresies. So people, even in our church, will say, you're not allowed to judge. Now, that's generally in the context of you're not allowed to call someone out on an immoral choice. So my response to that is, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's in Matthew 7, 1. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Oh, when he says that, that's what he means? He means don't ever call anybody out? Because if he does, he's a hypocrite. Paul's a hypocrite. I mean, Paul actually names people. Alexander the coppersmith has done me wrong. The, guy, the poor guy's name's in the Bible, right? <laughs> no. um, and uh, so if, if, if Jesus meant don't ever 
say to someone, you're wrong. What do we do with Matthew 18? Like, that doesn't even make sense. If Matthew 7 is read that way, Matthew 18 about confronting a brother, that doesn't even make sense. So what does Matthew 7 mean? Very simply, Matthew 7 means don't judge people on a standard other than the one that you're to be held to. That's why he goes on right away to talk about the log and the, and the speck. So he's talking about hypocrisy. He's not talking about never saying you're wrong. <laughs> of, course, of course you have to say you're wrong. We do that with our children all the time. And like we become adults, like that's not allowed anymore. So we have to help correct people's misconception that Christianity is a non-judgmental faith. It's very much of a judgmental faith. In fact, it's really, that's one of its cornerstones. It's about divine judgment, and it's about the people of God speaking on God's behalf about what's right or wrong. But it's like, there's people that feel uh, more uncomfortable with the idea of judgment than they do with like the F word. Because there's Christians that will use the F word, but they'll never use the J word. And this is a problem in the church. So the church has kind of contributed to that by not understanding the nature of what it means to articulate truth over and against untruth. And then, of course, um, while we live in a culture where, we, where there's a lot of different denominations, and we're, we're not going to... I personally don't have time to pick apart every little aspect of what every Christian believes that I may not agree with. But I, I think I should always have time to pick apart deviations from the fundamentals. And, uh, and yet many Christians don't even want to do that. So being a Christian is, is Jesus in your heart. It's not really about whether you're Trinitarian or not, how you believe you get to heaven, the nature of Scripture, these kinds of things. So we kind of contribute to the culture by um, not presenting Christianity well, and then people then have preconceptions about Christianity. You're, I thought you were people that aren't supposed to judge. Oh, yeah, we are. I can give you lots of biblical examples. And uh, anyway, so those are some things to think about, too. So com common, there's going to be a common set of objections that you're going to experience in apologetics and evangelism. So, I, I mean, that one, I guess I didn't really answer your question. That one, I would probably... Again, depending on the person, just looking at the conversation objectively, though, I, I would want to then push and ask, well, are there things that you believe are objectively right or wrong? And what are those? And then nine times out of ten, they'll tell you. And if they don't tell you, then you can start feeding them. Okay, so you believe that if I go and take a machete and chop someone's head off, that's okay? That's a relative thing? Well, no, of course not. Well, Why? And you start to press them. Why do they believe that certain things are right or wrong? And then when you get them to admit that certain things are right or wrong, then you can say, well, then maybe, even though it may not be as important for our relationship to agree on this, maybe it's possible that your view of God is wrong and mine's right or vice versa or my view of Jesus or wh whatever, right? And, or you could sort of uh, create hypothetical situations. Say, okay, well, let's just say for a moment that there is a God, and that what I'm telling you is right. If that was true, would there be any implications for your life? And then vice versa, if what you're saying is true, that it doesn't really matter what you believe, are there any implications for my life? Now, the correct response is, coming this way, no. Coming this way, yes. So, because Christianity is an exclusive faith, properly understood, one can say, when they're talking with someone that doesn't believe that faith is exclusive, there's no real stakes that need to be driven in the ground. The old line that, well, if you're right, I've got nothing to lose. But if I'm right, you have eternity to lose. 
And that sometimes gets people thinking, wow, you know, well, if the exclusive claims are right, that has implications for your life. But if it's a, everybody, all, all things are equal, no, nothing doesn't really matter, then I can do whatever I want and, and it has no implications for my life in the here and now. So my, my claims are actually more dangerous than your claims. And that kind of may stir that person up and get them thinking a little bit instead of just blowing it off. Because I think you do want to communicate to people when you're communicating the essence of the gospel that there are implications to this. This is not just philosophy. It's not just different opinion. There's implications for this. And I passionately believe there are implications for this. You need to consider. You can't just blow it off as inconsequential stuff. So then you got a Romans 1 person. Suppress the truth, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I get those moral forward emails, the, the nice emails from people that I've actually had conversations with in the past who don't really want to talk about God, but if they get an email that has some moral then, of course, Pastor Aaron wants to read it. Usually I think it's corny, right? <laughs> and I'm really not interested at all. But it sort of it, it causes me to think that they're thinking about and observing your lifestyle, your choices, and your claims. Yeah. Anyone else in the back there? Back rowers? Okay. So um, what I want to talk about next, then, is worldviews and re uh, religion and worldviews. And... Um, some of this overlaps a little bit, but purposefully. And uh, what we're trying to do is just try to help you to understand. I want you to think about, I don't want you to think about worldviews and religions as the same thing, but there are some overlaps. So what constitutes a world religion? The term world religion refers to an internationally, that's why it's called world, attested personal, cultural, and or institutionalized system of belief attitude and practice, so there's belief, attitude and practice, that seeks to address supernatural concerns, notably worldview questions. Religions arise out of worldview questions. Religions don't make worldview questions necessarily. There's worldview questions that are common in the world and out of those questions arise religions to try to answer those underlying questions, you see? Now, the one exception to this, I would say, is the true religion, uh, the Judaic Christian religion, that didn't exist in response to worldview questions, but in fact existed and therefore gave rise to worldview questions. But that's my personal perspective as a Christian. So why study other faiths? Oh, by the way, does Christianity constitute itself as a world religion? Okay, he says yes, but I've heard a lot of people say Christianity is not a religion. So why do you think that, Robert? Okay, very simple. He's right. It, it fits the definition. So when we say well, Christianity is not a religion, we need to be a little bit careful what we mean by that is that the essence of salvation is not about rules and regulations because that tends to be what defines religions. But in, in technically speaking, Christianity is a religion. 
uh, we are religious people. And there's something in the Bible about a religion that is pure and undefiled. <laughs> so Christianity is a religion, but when we say it's more about a relationship, not a religion, we just need to make sure that we're saying that in the proper context. And, and that means that it's, it's about the encounter with God, not so much about the, the institutionalized dimension to things. Okay? So why then study other faiths? I've written down a few different ideas here. Of knowledge value. Um, all religions make truth or un untruth claims um, based upon worldview questions. So as intelligent or intellectual beings, we must differentiate truth from error. So there's a knowledge, a, a curiosity. Uh, there's an apologetic value. We're called to gently and respectfully defend the truthfulness of the gospel. There's an evangelistic value, which isn't to be separated too much from apologetics, but it's sort of a kissing cousin or subcategory, depending on how you look at it. The Christian is called to proactively propagate the hope of the gospel of Christ. The reason why I say it's, it's, it can be the same as apologetics or it might not is sometimes you will meet people that there are, there are no barriers they're, they, they're okay with basically God has prepped them or they've already overcome them, so you don't have to get into like defensive discussions. You just present them with the pure gospel. You're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You can trust in him, and they will accept him. And I've had people like that. It's like, I was kind of hoping for a bit of debate. No, there is none. I'm, I'm really willing to accept Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized the profession of my faith. I and it's, it's kind of refreshing, but sometimes you, you're presented with scenarios like that. There's an experiential value. Religion, or lack thereof, affects the way we experience life. There's a cultural value. Religious worldviews are influencing the moral, social, and political landscape of our world. Don't you think? They are. They affect the decisions that leaders make. That's why when you have people that tend to be more Christian in governmental positions, they tend to make different decisions than people who are opposed to Christianity. Uh, ethical value, belief systems affect moral choices and conduct. So someone mentioned the abortion question, we talked about the euthanasia question. These ethical choices are affected by your beliefs about God, you, the world, right, wrong, all these kind of things. Eternal value, religions seek to address ultimate and eternal questions that potentially, I put potentially in brackets because I believe they do, but if you're writing this more objectively, potentially affect eternal destinies. So the need to understand world views as well as religion is important. Fritz Reidner said, a worldview is a set of assumptions that make up your personal outlook on the nature of the world and how to live within that world day by day. So again, we ask questions under the worldview camp about one's God, one's existence, one's ethics, one's epistemology. Again, that's the study of knowledge, or how we know, uh, and one's eternity. So some of the major worldview categories then that have been uh, sort of arisen out of the answers that people have given to worldview questions include things like naturalism. I want to get, do a lecture on naturalism, but just broadly speaking, what is naturalism? Naturalism is a, a, an identifiable worldview. You'll find many people in the world that would say, I'm a naturalist. It's because they've answered those questions in a similar way. 
So the naturalist says then that reality, for instance, is composed of matter only. And therefore, there is no God, because God is not a being of matter. A pantheist says reality is one, one reality is all, and all reality is God, with a small g. Now that word God can be replaced with another word, depending on the religion that's attached to the worldview, like nirvana, or the cosmic void, or whatever the language might be. But reality is one, one reality is all, and all reality is God. So there's not so much of a split between the material and the immaterial. Everything is, is one cosmic or one spiritual reality. And in a sense, we need to uh, realize that or become conscious of that, and that's going to affect our choices. Polytheism is generally the belief that, the worldview belief category, that reality is composed of matter and non-matter. But there are many gods. So poly, many. Theos, gods. Theism is that reality is composed of matter and non-matter. So that's the same as the polytheist, but that there is one god as opposed to many gods. And this sounds like funny language, but I didn't make it up. Allism or combinationalism is the pervasive Western worldview that selects elements from different worldviews, and it's not really all that consistent. So the, the good news for you is when you're interacting with Joe Blow Canadian, chances are that they are a combinationalist. And just in showing their inconsistencies, you will be able to open the doors to having intelligent dialogue and introducing them to a faith that is consistent the very least. See what I'm saying? So you can catch people in inconsistencies. So a combinationalist might, for instance, if you go back to the seven questions, um, say for instance, um, what happens to a person at death? Um, I think we become extinct. Okay. Then you get on to question five. How do we know What's right or wrong? Well, we, we, just, we just know that. Well, are you going to be held accountable to that? Yeah. By who? I'm not really sure. So on one hand, there's a sense of moral right and wrong that's grounded in something higher. But on the other hand, there might be this conflicting, contradictory idea that uh, they, there's nothing after death. So the, why, if there's nothing after death, why are you concerned about right or wrong? Why does it bother you so much? Or... Um, find a person that says, uh, you know, I think that human beings are animals. Okay, do you eat beef? Yeah. So why does it not bother you to eat beef, but the idea of cannibalism repulses you? Like, wh what is it that gave you that idea? So you see there's, there's inconsistencies in that because they're combinationalists. They just sort of are picking and choosing answers to the questions, but they're not necessarily consistent. So all I'm saying is just from a strategic perspective, if you can start to show some of those inconsistencies, at the very least, you might disarm them, and then they might give you a listening ear, and it opens the door to at least introduce to them Christianity. And the cool thing about Christianity is, let's say you don't even believe it, okay, you don't believe it, it actually still is consistent within itself. 
properly understood, biblical Christianity answers all the questions. The questions don't contradict. The answers to the questions don't contradict any of the others. And minimally, biblical Christianity is a livable faith if it's properly lived. So that's more of a pragmatic argument, but, but it actually bears some weight with people that it's a consistent lifestyle, it's a consistent worldview, and it actually does answer the questions well within its own parameters. Okay? Okay, any uh, questions then um, arising from those definitions? Yes, Dela? So for those in the back or those that would be listening to this recording, the basic statement is Dale is finding more and more people that are, in a sense, combinationalists within the church. And what do you do? Do you stop them? How do you deal with all that kind of stuff? Well, there's, there's no 10-step uh, process to deal with that because the, the, the statement that you've made is like a, a statement about the whole culture of certain aspects of Christianity. So I, th I think it has to be vigilantly approached from a whole variety of angles. The teaching of good theology, the teaching of good Bible study methods, uh, holding people to biblical standards of behavior and holiness, making sure people have a proper view of God, a proper view of what it means to be an image bearer of God, making sure they're within a community of faith that lives out, that teaches and lives out the Christian faith, teaching people about ethical choices, teaching people about apologetics. It's a comprehensive thing because it, it's a worldview question. And you don't change someone's worldview in one conversation. So worldview is so pervasive, so comprehensive, so like macro, that you have to approach it from a, a, a variety of angles. But you can start, of course, if you just happen to be in a conversation with someone like that by challenging just start by challenging one thing, like the nature of knowledge. Is Christianity, does Christianity have anything to do with knowledge? What is your, back to our original conversation, what is faith to you? A lot of Christians don't realize that faith is not irrational. And there's a certain element to faith that makes it non-rational, and there's certain things that faith is based on that are rational, but some people think it's irrational. Well, you've got to correct that misconception in order to then challenge them to believe certain things to be true, to live a certain way. So it's, it's, you've asked sort of the, the broadest possible question one could ask, and it, it's, the response is, is, is um, everything that we do has to be done to combat and fight that. Parents, 
high school and college are the critical years when people are thinking through these issues. You can't just send your kid off to college I don't, or, or, or high school. I don't care if it's a Christian one, a Catholic one, a secular one, whatever it might be. You can't send them off to places like that and not ask them questions about what they're learning, how they're processing information. Because don't assume because they're in a Christian school or a Christian college or a Christian university, they're getting all the right stuff. They're not necessarily. So you, no matter where your kids are schooled, you need to have conversations with your kids. And uh, you know it, it, it does the whole church a favor if minimally we keep our kids informed. And then we can put most of our energy into the people that are coming into the church that are first-generation Christians who don't yet know Christ. That's where we should be really focusing apologetics and good theological teaching. It would be nice to have a church where we assume, like if you're raised here, I mean, you already sort of have your four gold stars. You know this stuff. This is like a no-brainer to you. So we focus our energy outside when people are coming in. Joy? Yeah. Junior or senior? Okay. Mm. Good. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. Good. Other comments or questions? Okay, time's up, so uh, thank you for coming tonight. I hope you guys all get home in good time with the traffic congestion and all that, but uh, we'll see you back here next week.